Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Goes by the pseudonym Bo Snurdly. It's time for the soul of excellence. He is a radio host at 77 WABC here in New York. The Rush Hour is on the air. Rush, Rush. Now here's Bo Snurdly on the Red Apple Podcast Network. We have someone who's joining us today who kind of covered this and has written an amazing book called The Big Lie. Jonathan Lemaire is uh, the host of MSNBC's Way Too Early, um, but he is also the Washington bureau chief at Politico and worked at AP for quite some time when it covered Trump and Biden. And Jonathan, welcome to Bo- the Boston Early Rush Hour. Anthony, great to be here. Um, now, let's, we should clear the decks, and I think I might have lost a bet to you at some point that makes me say this, but the boy, the Bruins look good, man. The Bruins look really good. I'm not going to celebrate too much here. It's not even the first of the year, uh, but they are on near record-setting pace at this point. Uh, they've, I believe, undefeated at home, maybe just lost the one. Uh, they've been great. It's a core uh, that's been there for a few years. Pasternak is one of the best goal scorers in the league. And the goaltending, a subject Amazing. I know you care, care quite a bit about, has been fantastic. Yeah, but you know, you know who, who the cog might be? And I don't want to bore our listeners. They hear me talk about hockey too much. David Krejci is a valuable player, man. And having him oh, back is amazing. Nice yeah, yeah, he's, he's made a real difference. But they're a deep team. They go a couple of different lines. Uh, there's some thought this might be Patrice Bergeron, the captain, his final season. At least so far, they would be sending out a great note. Great. Thanks for joining us for the sports report, Jonathan. We'll, yes. uh, we'll catch you next time. Actually, so we're talking a little bit about this notion that Donald Trump has now fallen out of favor. Some of the hosts here on conservative radio have kind of said maybe it's time we move on from him. And I guess what I'm trying to get at, and some of our listeners are weighing in on this, is, you know, I I have seen this movie before. I mean, where we have this, okay, there's been a sea change around Donald Trump. And your book, which is a fascinating look, and I should just say for our listeners— it doesn't tisk tisk at Trump supporters. It ta- you know it 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 takes a hard look at just what happened leading up to 2020 and takes us to just about the midterm elections of this year. And it's a, it's a great and interesting read. And there's a lot of stuff in there that I didn't know. But based on on the stuff that you've observed and still being there every day covering this, why should we believe that this downtick for Donald Trump is any different than the downtick after the Holly, the Access Hollywood or any other uh, any other ebb that we thought he had hit? Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words on the book. But you're right. Uh, it would be premature to count out Donald Trump just yet. He is political obituary has been written several times in the past. And you mentioned one of them right there after the release of the Access Hollywood tape when a lot of Republicans finally said, OK, enough is enough. We're going to turn our back on him. He was able to rally. I think it's fair to say this is the lowest moment he has been politically since the morning of January 7th, 2021, after uh, the insurrection. But we know that he bounced back even from that. A few weeks later, Kevin McCarthy made his pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago. Trump managed to work his way back in the good graces of many Republicans. And for most of 2021 and this year, 
polled very well with them. He has taken some blows here, no doubt. If you just recap the last month since he announced his candidacy for 2024, uh, he had dinner with a white supremacist. He suggested terminating the Constitution. Uh, his legal peril has only increased on a variety of fronts, uh, a number of investigations. Uh, he put out some NFTs that didn't go over really well. And most importantly, he is being held responsible for Republicans faring so poorly during this year's midterms, not nearly as well as anticipated. So yeah, polls suggest that he's taken a hit among Republicans, but he's still the most popular figure among a lot of them. And as we start thinking about this next presidential race, it remains to be seen who actually will challenge him and who could beat him within the GOP. Right. And isn't there almost, isn't it almost a force of gravity at this point that institutional Republicans and media types constantly are underestimating the the hold that he has over his base. I'm, I'm going to read just for, from a very brief section of your book. There are some Republicans who wish he would stop litigating 2020 and focus on the future, but they remain largely silent. The big lie wasn't going to hurt Trump's chances at the presidency among Republicans. It might only enhance them. The party remained his. Now, this was written before your book takes us up to the midterms and maybe some things have changed. But there seems to be almost a structural thing going on in politics that people like you and people like me and people like Mitch McConnell continually misunderstand his base. And his base is loyal to him through thick and thin. And I think I would admit this is thin or thick. I don't know which side of that this goes. But it does seem to me like we constantly get it wrong because we are not someone he's ever spoken to. That part of it is right. And I know for me and the book is in informed so much by the time I spent on the road covering the Trump campaign, both in 2016 and again in 2020, that led me to night after night talking to members of his base and his supporters and trying to understand the hold that he has on them, the appeal uh, that he has. And and that's where we are, that he has, he may have indeed have a ceiling of support. That's what establishment Republicans are worried about, that, that Trump can't win. He didn't win in 2020. He wouldn't be able to win in 24. But he also has a pretty high floor as these things go. There's 30, 35 percent, 40 percent of Republicans who are going to be with him no matter what, who have not been phased by any of the, the, the challenges in his presidency or since then, or even the, this most recent midterm elections, they still would be with him. And I think there is a sense among Republicans, those who are eager to turn the page on Trump, that the more candidates that get into this race, if it becomes a multi-candidate race that, that divides the field, that's only good for Trump. Yeah, I, I, page is not going anywhere. Yeah, I, I read the morning console, that big poll that they did in the middle of December, which kind of put everyone on the ballot. And and, you know, I, I, it's it's evocative of 2016. The more people on the yeah. stage, the bigger he winds up looking. Is the specter of Donald Trump still looming out there actually good for Joe Biden? The White House believes it is, yes. Uh, they, they, they like that contrast quite a bit. Uh, the president, you know, he's not officially committed to running for reelection, but certainly all signs point to him doing so. People closest to him say, look, no final decision has made just yet. But we're preparing as if he will. Um, and the argument, part of the theory of the case for a Biden second term, a, a reelection bid, is that he's the one candidate who beat Trump before and he can again. They like that contrast quite a bit and they have a hard time imagining beyond Trump's base, uh, you know, independent voters, swing voters, 
suddenly looking at Trump and saying, you know, I didn't vote for him in 20, but I will in 24. That's a that's a they don't see too many of those voters out there. They're more concerned, perhaps, uh, if, if Trump were to eventually bow out or be defeated, and then Biden would have to face up against right. another different Republican. Right. This is Anthony Weiner filling in for James Golden. We're talking to Jonathan Lemaire, the, the author of The Big Lie, Associated. No, he's no longer Politico, White House bureau chief, also an MSNBC uh, host. I'm leaving that part to the end, knowing what my listeners think about MSNBC. And we're going to talk about that in a minute because I have a specific question about that. But let me ask you a little bit. It, you know, your book is a perfect kind of introduction to the January 6th hearing report. It kind of – you actually got a lot of the stuff that it took them months and dramatic hearings to get. A lot of it you lay out. You lay out, in fact, that you know you found moment zero of the talk about this being a fraudulent election in August of 2016 and the very interesting where your book jumps off from. But let me ask you what you think we're experiencing now. I mean there's two views. One is the Trump period and the impeachments and the January 6th stuff – it showed us how fragile our democracy is. And another voice that I have heard increasingly loud since the success of Democrats in the midterms is, you know, this was like a stress test that we passed. We've seen the worst possible scenario, an armed insurrection, a president who wouldn't, you know, wouldn't accept the results. And here we are. We're still standing. The voters spoke and they basically rejected people who took that view. Where do you stand on the continuum between you know, oh, my goodness, this is the end of democracy as we know it. And, hey, we're doing just great. I think I would, my own vantage point would be somewhere in the middle where. Uh, By the way, Jonathan, that's that's the name of my Saturday show. So well done with the product placement. Yes. Go, yeah, go ahead. I do what I do what I can. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I think the institutions did hold the democracy held, but barely. Uh, and I think that it, the book outlines just how close we came. Uh, to, to things going in a different direction. The, the, the January 6th committee uh, has done the same in their series of hearings and the report um, that just came out a couple of days ago. And I think that there it would be foolish to suggest that the danger has passed. Um, I think that whether it be from Donald Trump uh, himself in 24 or another candidate down the road um, who we don't know yet, uh, I think that there were some vulnerabilities in the system that were exposed. And yes, some perhaps are being corrected, others not. And I think there's also, we see writ large issues with society and, and media and, and, and social media and how easy it is to be in your own silos now and not even talk to people uh, who disagree with you and it's so easy to vilify them. There are real challenges uh, facing uh, this democracy. Uh, and, you know, we as citizens, the media uh, all have to do our part. Yeah, you know, you, that's a perfect lead up to the final thing I want to talk to you about. And again, I really do appreciate you taking so much time with us. So you were an organ you were you covered the the Biden and Trump White Houses for the Associated Press about as, as down the middle a news organization as there is. Politico, the same way you're the White House bureau chief. MSNBC is perceived to be the voice of the left. Fox News is perceived to be the voice of the right. I don't think that anyone can really argue that that perception is not correct. Are we in a situation now that that kind of bifurcation of the media, while it might be good business, and I'm sitting to you as a fairly progressive guy at a conservative station, that that kind of bifurcation of the in, of the information business is leading to a certain amount of, of just inability for Americans to trust anything they're hearing because everything is getting siloed? I think that is part of it. I think there's the... The polarization of the media and also 
the ability now, though the Internet and social media is, is, is a democratic place and there are so many good things that have come of it, they're dangerous too. And it is. And, and, and the book gets into this a little bit, um, but it's so easy now uh, to fall down rabbit holes, to, to not trust anyone in the media to, you know, who disagrees with you, to only listen to whether it's a, a cable TV pundit or a radio host or someone online, only listen to those you agree with. Find the YouTube channel uh, that, that, that you check the most boxes with. And to not even be exposed to people who have a different point of view, to only move with fellow like-minded travelers, those are, those are dangers. That's how conspiracy theories spread. Um, there's a lack of trust right now in a lot of American institutions, government, yes, media, yes. Um, I, I don't know how that gets repaired, but it only seems like it is getting, getting worse. And I do think for any democracy, including this one, uh, that's a real danger. Yeah, I, I just have to say, and, and, and I think that your early show is a little bit different. You guys do a lot, of, you know, you do a lot more straight news. Your people are getting up. They're trying to figure out what's going on in the day. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a good show. I don't know how you do it in the middle of the morning the way you do it. But I, <laughs> I do think that one of the things and not, one of the things that I try to do is I am constantly mindful here of the fact that I'm a, a fairly progressive voice and a conservative radio station. And it keeps me honest to some degree. I wonder if people at MSNBC don't just see their audience as being all left and so they talk in a certain way about the issues and people at Fox who know, think their audience is all right, they talk about it in a certain way and it just gets us further and further um, apart from one another. I, 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 think that, I think there's a reason why there's mistrust of the media and, and I, I think that it's somewhat well-founded. Yeah, well, certainly my show, we, it's, a, it's a straight newscast. It is, as you mentioned, way too early, five in the morning for your early risers out there. Uh, but we play it down the middle. It, it is simply, this is what happened. And, and indeed, because for a lot of folks, they're getting up. They've only got a few minutes, whether, you know, these are, whether getting ready for work, heading to the gym, getting the kids ready for school, whatever it might be, and only have time to, okay, what's going on? Tell me what's important. And that's what we, uh, that's what we aim to do. But taking a step back and just looking at the larger picture. Yeah. I think that, that there is an element of, of the media that has, Perhaps rightly, uh, you know, found uh, you know to, to to do better job of, of earning the readers or viewers trust, and of course, it's also Anthony. I know you you care about this the the the, the lack of the loss in, in the uh, in local media, those local right. newspapers that are so important, uh, in big cities and small towns alike, um, to to keep an eye on what's going on, and we're losing those by the day, and that is a real problem. Yeah, that's well. that's a, that's a great point to finish on. I think that. Maybe a George Santos doesn't happen if we still had a vigorous local media and that Newsday was still had the, the, the newsroom that it did. Well, I really want to thank you, Jonathan Lemire, the, the host of, uh, of Way Too Early and also the author of a New York Times bestseller, The Big Lie. Um, he's going to go directly from here to the Prudential Center where the Devils are playing his Boston Bruins. I know you're probably not. Mm-hmm. That's probably something you don't get to do anymore, stay up watching hockey games anymore, huh? I, I got to a Devils game actually just a, a little while ago, but uh, tonight I'm going to watch first couple periods on TV, but then I will have to go to Fair bed. Enough. Go Bruins. We, re- we really appreciate your being along with us. This is Anthony Weiner filling in for James Golden. You, the listeners, get the final word on the other side of the break. James Golden, known popularly as Bo Snurdly. This is The Rush Hour with Bo Snurdly. Rush. On the Red Apple Podcast Network.